WDSU Stanford. I'm Mark Molyneux. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show about housing, about politics, about so much more. On the, sh- on the show today, we have Alex Shaffron. He's the author of the book, The Road to Resegregation, Northern California and the Failure of Politics. It is all about the Bay Area and beyond, the whole Northern California region, how it got in this mess as far as housing, why it is de facto segregated, and what we can do about it. Without further ado, welcome, Alex. Thank you very much, Mark. It's good to be here. The book is The Road to Resegregation, Northern California and the Failure of Politics. It's by, put out by the University of California Press. Uh, I just think it's a wonderful antidote to so much that is missed in the housing discourse today. Uh, so much of the housing discourse can tend to be hyper-local, can tend to simplify into having one big idea that explains everything. Uh, your book is, it's a big book that can t- tries to contain a little bit of everything you need to know. And it's messy and it's not clear. It, it is about the entire region of the Bay Area, which is not just nine counties, but even beyond now. So I guess when did you know that, that it was this big I mean, I like to think that I have simple ideas about relatively simple things. You know, the Golden State Warriors winning the NBA title for me is a sort of semi-complex thing, but it's simple. I want it to happen, and it's good when it does, and it's bad when it doesn't. Uh, but the rest of the world doesn't quite work that way. So I think I had the the benefit of, you know, having grown up in the Bay Area and, and paid attention to what was happening in the Bay Area before I became became a, a formal student of housing politics or, or before I became an advocate and an organizer in this area, which is what I was before I became a student of it. So I think I had the benefit of, of, of listening to the noise and, and participating in the noise for a really long time before I even started writing the book or started imagining the book. And so I, I think that's that's kind of why you, you get this this resistance to, to the simple story. Um, and, and I, you know, there's a there's a great line by one of my favorite urban writers, Abdul Malik Simon, who writes about African cities. And, and Malik's work can be really, really dense. Um, it's almost like spoken word urbanism. And he has a line in his great book, For the City Yet to Come, which he says, you know, listen, you know, the, my writing is a bit complex, but the story I'm telling is about really, really complex spaces. And so you're going to have to work a little bit to understand what I write because you have to work a little bit to understand uh, the kind of places that just to paraphrase him, and I, I try again. The barrier is n- not so insanely complex. I try to I try to tell the story in a in a readable narrative in a in a in a way that you know you're not going to get caught up on my language. Hopefully, but uh, yeah, it resists the simplicity. It's about a lot of different institutions and a lot of different places, and and it's a it's it's a big big place, and uh, I think it takes time and, and effort to understand it in that way. You have the you have the uh, advantage of having lived in the North Bay, having lived in the West Bay, having lived in the East Bay, and multiple parts of this. And I, I think a lot of people may treat everything with a bit of myopia of this is where I'm at, and this is what it looks like. And I think here in Santa Clara Valley, uh, you know, Santa Clara County, where we're where we're based out of, a lot of people may not even know the first thing about uh, Contra Costa County, and yet this is a major part of the book is about. Uh, different, uh, what is going on in different regions of Contra Costa County, which is one county, but a lot of different sub-environments. 
And in short, how, uh, you know, what should somebody who is here in Silicon Valley know about them and why, why should they, you know, why should they know about a region which is so far away? <laughs> I mean, I, I would hope, I mean, there, there are obvious political and very practical reasons to learn a bit more about the region. Um, so, you know, policy is made at many different scales in many different areas, but when it comes to some of the major interventions that uh, are necessary for housing and transportation, they're going to come at the regional scale or the statewide scale, which means you're understanding a little bit, you know, it involves politicians and community organizations and businesses and unions, et cetera, you know, political power players in lots of different places. So the, the, you know, whatever, if, if, if people in Santa Clara Valley want or need interventions in terms of Caltrain or in terms of BART coming here, that's a, a broader regional conversation. And so you should know a little bit about the people and the politics and the other places because those politics are interacting with your politics to produce whatever regional decisions uh, that you come from, that you, that you have. But I would hope that that there was would also be a kind of just, I don't know, a human curiosity. It, you know, the Bay is a strange place. It, you'll rarely find the place in the United States where people have such a strong regional identity. Oh, yo, yo, I'm from the Bay, the Bay, the Bay, the Bay, the Bay. But we don't necessarily actually spend a lot of time exploring and really experiencing the other parts of the Bay. And that's, that's actually in some ways how and why the book started. Originally, this was going to be a book about gentrification and about Oakland and a very kind of narrow approach and a very, you know, uh, middle-class white gentrifier living in North Oakland and South Berkeley, writing the story of, 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 of where he was living. And, and I, I started to, see, you know, I, I realized more and more people, some people were asking me, you know, where are people going? You know, when they leave Oakland, where are they going? And the answer I knew was places like Pittsburgh or Antioch or these places in Eastern Contra Costa County or places like Stockton and Modesto or Tracy, et cetera, and all places on the outer fringes of the region that I had driven through maybe on my way to L.A. or driven through on my way to somewhere else but never really spent much time. And so the, the, the original research ethos and the original research project was about getting out there and just simply explore, you know, somebody who's, yeah, grown up in the Bay, very proud of, of the Bay Area, very proud to be from here, had lived in the North Bay and lived in the South, you know, lived, you know, went to school down here and I lived in, in parts of the East Bay. But all told, I actually realized I didn't actually know that much about the region as a whole. And so as part of doing this research, I went to every single mapped place in Contra Costa and Alameda County. I mean, from Port Costa and some of these sort of small, almost ghost towns in Contra Costa County, all the way to a place like Antioch, which has more than 100,000 people um, that people don't realize is one of the largest cities uh, in the region. And so I, I, I've, it, this was really, uh, the book in many ways is a, a book about, you know, about, the, well, it's not about this, but it, it comes from a Bay Area native deciding to finally learn something about the, the, the complete region, the full region, the, the totality of the region that he comes from. So what, 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 is the, what is the best way, if you're trying to learn more about a city and a community that is foreign to you, to ingratiate yourself without just being a tourist and to really, what, what is the best way to learn? Well, I think, I mean, there's a limit to ingratiating. I don't know if I ever truly ingratiated myself with with, with anybody in this. And, the, you know, the book is fundamentally, you know, even though it, it, it started from and used a lot of these kind of ethnographic methods around exploration, it's not an ethnography and not a sociological book or an anthropological book. 
this book's about politics, about policy, about urban development, about, you know, transportation systems and housing and has, you know, analysis of jobs and data. And it's a very kind of, um, not a classic political economy, but it's fundamentally, you know, in the, I would say, and somewhat in the political economy tradition. So it wasn't about, I'm not, I never tried to sort of ingratiate myself. It's about trying to understand. And that's, I mean, one of the things I think that for some reason people try to ignore is that is this sort of need and this demand and this urge to just try to understand. I was, I, I didn't, under, you know, I grew up in the Bay. Like a lot of people, I consider myself a progressive. We're supposedly progressive. I knew that we're rich. Why is it that we were continuing to have all these problems? You know, and, and you know, I never met on a day-to-day basis anybody who would avowedly claim that they were racist, but the actual way that the, the region was restructuring was extremely racist. So how how was that happening? And so I, I focused on trying to understand. And I think, you know, again, exploring was part of that, wandering about, not being afraid to go to places where I didn't know people or didn't feel comfortable, trying different experiences. Um, I spent a lot of time at garage sales. Garage sales are a really amazing way to, like, explore suburbia because it's the one time in suburban space you can kind of wander onto somebody's property and have a bit of chat and just sort of talk about what's the things, you know, eat eating, dive bars, there are all kinds of different ways of, of getting around and experiencing people's life. But again, it wasn't always about ingratiating myself. It was about trying to understand. And that's the one thing. I think when you approach people, and you know, whether it's professionals or non-professionals in different communities, with the goal of trying to understand what's going on, people seem to be interested in telling you, in, in telling you their story and, and trying to explain to you how they understand things. The other thing about it is, is that a lot of people in places, it's not that everybody really understands what's going on around them. So it become, you know, oftentimes they would be interviewing people or having conversations with people and it would be a kind of mutual exploration, a mutual attempt to kind of figure out, okay, how did it end up this way? Why, you know, what's going on in this particular way? Um, and, and so that, yeah, that's, that's essentially how I approached it. I mean, that is the central mystery at the heart of the narrative, which is in a place where everyone is progressive how did this all combined to create a massive new form of segregation throughout an area and who has culpability to this and i think that yeah if, if people address this without the kind of curiosity to learn more people can either dig in i mean you, uh, just as in the bibliography is one thing by uh, dick spotswood of, of of marin county who was just saying like, oh, no one here in Marin County I know is racist, but you know, some what's so wrong with a bunch of upper middle class, you know, white people and Asians just wanting to live without crime? <laughs> like that's the kind of if you don't have the curiosity, you can just be complicit with these great systems. And uh yeah, I mean I think that it's you really describe and it's not the narrative of individual people, but it is it is a narrative flow of the region, and it's a it, you see the narrative of this great organism, which is uh, and and I guess you you break down. I've, I've never seen it so clearly, but I think there's a lot of truth into it of uh, the four zones of of the Bay Area. And I guess could could you just describe a little bit about you know why it's useful to break up the Bay Area into the zones to describe it? Okay, so yeah, one of the the pieces that I do in the book. Um, so the first chapter of the book makes an argument that the Bay Area has resegregated. And that's only the first chapter of the book. Again, like, like you said, most of the book is about why. Um, but in trying to understand and make this argument about resegregation, obviously we're not going back to some sort of exclusive post-war situation where African-Americans and people of color are exclusively trapped in a handful of small neighborhoods 
in the inner city or in places like East Palo Alto, but a much more kind of suburban, suburbanized form of segregation. Um, and so one of the techniques, I use a lot of different techniques in the, in the book, in that, in that first chapter to demonstrate it. There's some qualitative analysis. There's some basic descriptive statistics. Um, but there's a little bit of fancier statistical work uh, that was done together with my colleague Jake Wegman at the University of Texas in an earlier paper, which is you know published in 2012. So the paper's been around for a while. But in it, we divide up the Bay Area into four zones, which is basically the West Bay, the inner, the kind of Highway 880 corridor and the old industrial zone in the East Bay. There's this kind of third layer that goes from like basically imagine Marin County wrapping around through Walnut Creek and then coming down here into the Santa Clara Valley. And then the fourth zone is the sort of outer part of the bay. So imagine another arc that extends from, you know, Santa Rosa through Vallejo and Fairfield out to eastern Contra Costa County. And then the parts that are not even part of the formal Bay Area, but, you know, Stanislaus and San Joaquin County and Merced and all the way down to include places uh, like Gilroy. And the argument that we make and that we show, I feel like, fairly conclusively with the data is how communities of color, for the most part, were for a long time trapped in this zone two, and that's kind of Highway 880 corridor that, again, extends, actually sort of starts at in East Palo Alto. And again, these are kind of arcs around the Bay Area. And that for the most part during the you know 80s and 90s and 2000s, that instead of being able to sort of move into the West Bay in zone one or move into the sort of posher suburbs of zone three, that essentially they kind of leapfrogged that zone three area out into the farther reaches of the Bay Area. And those are places that, again, are places that have become overwhelmed, like majority non-white. They're places that on the surface actually appear to be and are often very nice kind of suburban communities with you know, again, a lot of amenities that may not appeal to some people who live in the in the city, but, you know, are, are often fundamentally can be very nice places to live. But there are places that have less fiscal stability, that have struggles with lack of public transportation, very, very, very long mega commutes because there are places that a lot of houses, housing was built, but not a lot of jobs. So people are forced to commute really long distances. And then these were the places in Zone 4 and this outer part that were fundamentally absolutely hammered by the foreclosure crisis in 2008. And so it's it's sort of this present, you know, post-war segregation, the way we tend to understand segregation as this kind of form of ghettoized living is the kind of thing that happened again in this Zone 2, in this inner core area in the Bay Area and places like Oakland and Richmond and little bits and pieces of sort of southern Alameda County like Newark. Um, or in East Palo Alto, and again, a handful of zones where you can kind of point to all the places on the map, for instance, where African-Americans were allowed to live. This zone four like situation is very different. I mean, it's not your grandmother's segregation. Um, people aren't trapped exclusively in a, in a handful of neighborhoods, but they're, you know, and people are able to move to the suburbs, but only to some suburbs, right? It's not to Walnut Creek. It's not to San Ramon. It's not to Marin County where I'm from. Um, it's not to so you know not a huge pouch of San Mateo or Santa Clara County, but only to these suburban areas and small cities farther out on the core. And so that's this sort of zone four phenomenon um, that we see. And and the argument in the book is that this new map of racialized inequality has to also be called segregation. So I, I call it resegregation, which may be misinterpreted as a return to a previous era. Um, but it's a term that I use, inspired in part by Jeff Chang's work on the same subject, uh, 
and I think it is important. I mean, I guess I could call it segregation 2.0, and I'm sure somebody will write an infuriating article called segregation 2.0. And then actually, that actually might be more accurate because essentially it's a new form of segregation. I call it resegregation because I do think that this it, the implication of going backwards in history is really important because we have like we're not progressing towards a better history in this regard. We sort of are going backwards. And again, the reason to call it segregation is because essentially when you have a region that is divided unequally, where race is the fundamental, one of the fundamental sources of that inequality and the fundamental ways in which that inequality plays out, I think you have to call it segregation. And when you call it segregation, it means that race is something at the forefront of your mind, and that's what's necessary. You try to understand the inequality of the Bay Area only through terms like inequality or housing crisis, et cetera, and you don't put race and racism at the forefront of your explanation, I think that you essentially, then you misunderstand. And again, the focus here is on trying to understand. Um, and, and, and the race is not, you know, and, and race is central to this, not just to understanding what happened, but also why it happened. And you described, too, uh, when you were talking about segregation versus this resegregation, the second form, you know, like refinancing, it, it can happen simultaneously. And this goes very much hand in hand with the fact that the the financing of these places is fundamental to what is, in fact, at the heart of the poverty in, involved there. Uh, when you talk about this mobile form of poverty, when people are now moving increasingly to the east counties, which is to say Antioch and Pittsburgh, uh, out in Contra Costa County, they are, you know, unlike here in Santa Clara County, growth is not only possible there, it's mandatory. You describe at one point, it's like a Ponzi scheme. In order to keep the financing of their city growing, they have to grow as much as they can because that is the way they finance their own cities. And you can see that this necessarily is at the heart of a boom-bust cycle, which put these very same people at the risk. And, in fact, they became the victims of uh, foreclosure crises. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I maybe just, uh, you know, uh, let me explain these two roles of finance in this story in different ways. And so when we're talking about financing of people's individual houses, how you buy a house, so finance is played... Again, different types of finance have played very particular roles in both forms of segregation. So in the in the post-war segregation, uh, white, previously often working class, uh, want to be homeowners, were able to get federally subsidized, federally protected loans, which is which was fundamental to the production of suburbia in the United States. So FHA guaranteed loans was really one of the key policy mechanisms that essentially, you know, a collaboration in many ways between banks and the federal government to guarantee mortgages if you were white. And so the denial of this type of secure financing to African-Americans was, a funda- was what the, arguably the, if not the, but one of the most important fundamental barriers to African-Americans suburbanizing and helped produce the ghettoist form of segregation that we knew in the post-war era. What changed in the in the more contemporary period, what I talk about as the neoliberal era. So this is the period, you know, again, after, you know, the election of Ronald Reagan in that period as as the federal government began to withdraw, is that now all of a sudden, okay, African Americans and people of color and, and, and were were more legally and culturally able to move to at least certain parts of suburbia and they were there was legislation and attempts to make it so that there was less discrimination in the housing market and less discrimination in 
uh, in the banking market, but what you had it did, didn't create a sort of equal banking and financing system. So a lot of what drove enabled folks to move out to these farther places were subprime loans, were bank loans that instead of being you know federally guaranteed and safe and secure, thirty-year fixed rates, the kinds of things that built a middle class in the United States for white folks, they were more likely to be you know have balloon payments and all kinds of shady finance deals and you know all kinds of interest-only loans and subprime lendings at very high rates, and so the underlying finance that many people used to suburbanize in this later era, which again was much more likely to be communities of color and much more likely to be in these kind of outer areas of zone four, um, were much more likely to be this kind of very bad insecure debt. And so again, it's just, you look at, again, two different types of segregation at two different eras, both of which are related to different types of financing that originate from banks, but just very different mechanism and produces, again, Similarly unequal, but very different results. And these are people who are trying to get on the home, home, yeah, homeownership ladder. This doing, is what, yeah, yeah, they're doing what my parents said they're doing. Everybody, you know, well, you know, this was the American dream. This is how it was done. You know, you just take, you know, nobody has, you know, people are not, nobody's rolling in with, you know, very few people are rolling with, you know, enough cash to buy your house. I mean, most of us buy a home with some sort of mortgage. I mean, that's just how it's done. And again, they just offered less, the, the, the homes that they bought were bought under just far worse and more insecure circumstances. And this parallels essentially this other aspect of financing, which is the financing of the actual cities and places. So when suburbia, the kind of white middle-class suburbia was built after the war, there was so much more public money for basic things like highways and roads and sewage systems and schools and you name it. So when you had that kind of port post-war white suburbanization, you know, the federal government was there, the state government was there rolling out the red carpet and basically providing a really secure place in which to, for all this suburbanization to happen. Effectively free infrastructure. Effectively, yeah. Yeah. Free I mean, infrastructure, or at least, inf well, you know, nothing obviously is free, but <laughs> it free, seems that you way. Know, when, you know, but when we all, when all 300 million people in the United States pool their money together, it's just certainly a lot cheaper and a lot more secure when it's all guaranteed and paid for by the federal government. Yeah, obviously we pay for it in our taxes and our income taxes, but these are very, very kind of secure, tried and true, tested forms of infrastructure provision. So, you know, a place like Walnut Creek was able to, you know, to sub become a suburb where everything for the most part was paid for and supported at higher levels of government. By the time a place like Antioch or Brentwood or Pittsburgh or Tracy or, pa or Patterson or any of the Lathrop or Manteca or many of the communities that I spent time in and that look at, by the time they became suburb suburbs, again, Antioch and Antioch was and it's been around for a very long time. It's one of the oldest cities in the state of California, but it, and it was an old industrial city that was kind of a little bit independent. It was in the Bay Area, but not really kind of economically is connected. It had a big paper mill. Um, it wasn't a suburb in the sense of people commuting into other places. So by the time these places all become suburbia, all of that federal support in state support is slowly but surely eroding. So one of the stories I tell in chapter two of the book is about the absurdity of Pittsburgh, Antioch, Brentwood, uh, and Oakley having to pool their monies to build their own freeway. Um, and this is just absolutely absurd. I mean, 
And, and, and the reason, and, and there's a few different reasons behind this. Again, some of it has to do with the kind of, you know, the right wing neoliberal revolution that happened under Reagan and then later, you know, Duke Majin and Wilson in California, where there was less and less support or less and less support for this kind of infrastructure. If you wanted to build a prison, that's a different story, right? And at this point, Wanna Creek had already been given and BART. All of all of the stuff is already there, right? I mean, it's not like Arinda paid for its BART and not like Lafayette paid for its BART. I mean, again, yeah, they all of the... Contra Costa County pay for that bar. People in Antioch and Brentwood have been paying sales tax, paying for BART since BART was planned and had never, you know, Antioch BART just opened up, what, a few months ago. Right? Yeah, I mean, nothing comes for free, Not- but there's a lot of people who pay into stuff pay and they into- don't get anything yeah. back for it. And so basically, essentially, these cities that where all of a sudden, you know, developers were building and they made the city, you know, again, the decision to allow the development to happen is on the local cities. But when they when that development hap- started to happen in all of these kind of farther out places, there wasn't that level of support. And so in what seemed to be a sort of smart planning decision, which is like, okay, well, we're going to tack on development fees, which we're going to basically force developers to pay X amount of dollars per house to pay for things like this new freeway. And that's where that kind of Ponzi scheme, right, happens. That if you don't, like, the cities became so fiscally dependent on new housing in order to pay for the infrastructure that in again in other cities in previous generations was paid financed in other far more secure ways um they needed it to be able to raise those kinds of capital costs and that again encourages more in development encourages more and more in development even if the infrastructure itself wasn't prepared to handle it and so that's what happened i mean essentially one of the reasons the traffic is so bad is that yeah there was no bar there was you know highway 4 was totally unprepared for that kind of population growth um, and that's how you end up in the in the situation. And again, that's part of the structural inequality. The the there's a the, you know people tend to blame the cities of Antioch and Brentwood and Pittsburgh and all these kind of places for the problem. And yeah, sure. I mean, again, every jurisdiction in this area has bears some sort of blame. But you know, you know, this was a, a, a this sort of decision to starve these places of of the needed financing. You know, it was one that wasn't made by them. It was made at the county level. It was made at the state level. Again, environmental organizations didn't want growth to happen out there, even though they weren't prepared to do the politics to make it so that growth could happen in the core. So people had nowhere to go, and they went out there anyway. And so in- instead of going out there with adequate transportation, they just went out there without adequate transportation. And that's part of what makes it segregation, right? Again, if you're racially living in structurally unequal places, that to me is a form of segregation. I mean, there's not a, there's a lot that's doesn't work about it but they were not given good alternatives this was they were doing what they could when they were running their cities like this um and yeah and and i think there's 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 you one one story which comes into this which i think is a fascinating because it seems like it has a lot to say about the bay area as a whole uh is the way that in the wake of prop 13 looking for ways to finance infrastructure uh, Contra Costa County introduced a countywide sales tax measure, Measure C, which failed originally, came back after the kind of core wealthier areas finally signed on, and it did two things. One is everybody uh, you know, works into the sales tax scheme, but it introduces growth limitations, which is largely to make sure that while the East County cities have to grow, the places that were most privileged were guaranteed never to have to grow, and it's 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 it seems like you see a lot of that at the large level, but it's very interesting to see that happening within a county too. 
Yeah, no, that's a, and that's a great point, and I, I, I really appreciate the the depth with which you've read the book. Um, I, I hope, I, I only hope, I, I, you know, someone else reads it at the same level. And yeah, so I mean, one of the things I, I do in the book is, is that it is, you know, originally this was a book that focused a lot on, 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 you know, on Antioch and on East County, on, but I, what I was really keen to do was. After a while, I realized is that I was I was at risk of repeating the problem we have in the United States is that we, when we see a problem manifesting itself in a particular place, we sort of write about that place. So Antioch ends up on the front cover of the New York Times um, after the foreclosure crisis. It's been on there a couple times for various for you know challenges with race and racism, but it makes it sound like Antioch is the problem. I mean, it, you know, there's a line in the quote in the book from a local planner in Antioch about essentially like you know everybody craps on us. Um, but we're setting out here dealing, you know, there's a hundred thousand people out there. We opened the Antioch opened the doors to sort of the full diversity of the Bay area. We have demographics that sort of mimic the UN and in Orinda, they can, you know, sit around and argue about the paint color on the movie theater. And, and that just couldn't be more true. I mean, the, the, the cities and the counties and the people who live out there get blamed for so much and get blamed for all of the kind of problems. But in, this is the place, a part of the Bay area that truly opened the doors to the, the kind of masses from the Bay area. I mean, this is, this is where, where you know, and, and, and places in, in Central Coastal County, County and, and other places in, in Marin County and Santa Clara County fundamentally didn't. And and but the, and the thing that you mentioned about sales tax, and one of the things I really try to do is to, so the book goes in different chapters, look at different places. So there's a chapter on Antioch, there's a chapter on Oakland and Richmond and Emberville, there's a chapter on Contra Costa County overall as a development space, there's a chapter on Silicon that deals with Silicon Valley and Marin County and San Francisco. There's a chapel in the Central Valley, another one on regionalism, another one in California, et cetera. So one, on the one hand, it, it, it forces, I'm trying to get people to see how decisions made in different places affected other places and that there's kind of a collective geographic responsibility. But the other thing that I try to do is to get away from this kind of fixation that people have on certain scales. So everybody's either obsessed with the local and local government or obsessed with regional government that is very weak, and maybe if it was stronger, it would be fine. So that chapter that you're talking about, that work you're talking about, is a chapter on Contra Costa County because nobody seems to pay attention to counties, you know. Not you know, and the counties are really important governments. They're important scales. Contra Costa County is a place where a lot of people live in unincorporated space. So development rules, development decisions, planning, zoning, etc., is decided by county agencies. Uh, uh, transportation funding is often something that is decided at county levels so most counties have some sort of transportation board again that's how they part of it is deals when they're able to p- pass a specific county s- sales tax is generally a county thing and so i'm tr- i try in the book to get people away from a particular fixation on a f- certain scale of development or a certain scale of government and again trying you know if the goal is to understand if you really want to understand then you got to look at all the different scales in which we govern ourselves and all the different types of institutions which participate in all those different scales so yes back to your point it's a complex story, but hopefully the writing is good enough that you can make it through without without wanting to kill yourself. Yeah, I mean, you, the, it's right here in the title, The Failure of Politics, and it is about the many, many layers of politics, and that's not just governance. This is about all the different institutions that also are involved and in how collectively the political system has failed to deliver the solutions we need. And part of it is, yeah, it could be different levels of myopia. It could be a fixation. A big part of it is everyone feels that, oh, if a big problem is we have too many tiny cities that suck, we just need to merge them together and then everything will be fixed. There's a lot of good reasons to believe that any simple solution is going to be 
inadequate to solve the many, many fundamental problems here in the Bay Area. And uh, I guess that, that brings up the idea of like a lot of different uh, dilemmas here. You have a couple of dilemmas that run through the book. One of it's, it, it starts in, in Contra Costa County, but it's very, it's very general. It was an infill development, Doherty Valley. Uh, and this is in some ways something you want. You want to see infill near where there needs to be housing. Uh, and it was, you know, the fight against it was big environmental forces saying, no, we don't want this infill. It's going to be bad for the environment. They fought it out. In the end, they built it. But in the end, it was ineffective. It was just not enough for what it needs. And I feel so many people are in the housing sphere and they're fighting so hard about all these battles. And you know that even the best case is going to be desperately inadequate to to solve these problems. What do we do about this? Yeah. So the... the um yeah, the title of the book is the you know Northern Cal or the subtitle of the book is the Northern California and the failure of politics. And so one of the things that I try to do in the book is ins insist that we need to start differentiating between different types of politics or politics about different things. So the Bay Area is really progressive, and if you ask yourself how to place that for the most part votes for the same party on the same issue, you know, every November and has for a really long time, how did we become the center of this problem? And the the answer is that we you know again for the most part maybe on things like war or gay rights or you know we you know or saving the bay or a few things like that we are in lockstep and we all generally agree and in those areas where we have consensus we can actually make a lot of progress but the bay is not a unified place when it comes to the politics of housing and and urbanization and so our our kind of overall supposed progressivity and the kind of overall general agreement on some things masks what are fundamental different disagreements? So again, you you brought out the emergence of kind of like what had been sort of very subtle racism in Marin becoming much more overt racism in Marin in the in 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 recent periods of time. When it comes to actually like building housing for people, everything falls apart. And so, but one of the things that is important, I would argue, is is that there's a, you know different politics have a different type of purpose. So. You know, if I, if you and I are debating abortion, the purpose of our conversation is not to actually agree on abortion. I mean, you may feel one way, and I might feel the other way. Same thing about uh, you know something like war. But the the purpose of talking about housing is to be able to actually make housing. I mean, no matter what our political spectrum, for the most part, I um, you know most people agree that housing is something that people need. Most people would agree that. You know, yeah, maybe you know the most even the most Ayn Randian kind of libertarian doesn't believe in a system that each individual human being must build their own housing. I mean, Ayn Rand never built her own house, I don't believe, by hand. And even if she did, I don't think she you know milled the lumber and cast the pipes. And you need a system, right? A system of a lot of different types of institutions coming together, some of which regulate, some of which produce, all of which end up with housing. And so when I talk about the failure of politics is because I believe when it comes to the politics of housing and urbanization, there's an obligation that we have to make it so that all of the noise and all the conversation and all the discussions that we have at the end result in the production of things like housing and transportation and schools, et cetera, that we all agree that we need. And that's what didn't happen in the Bay Area. So the Doherty Valley case you talk about is a kind of infamous development fight in the early 1990s that happened outside of San Ramon, which in, you know, which is where Bishop Ranch had been built and where a huge amount of jobs had been produced on that 680 corridor uh, in the kind of central Contra Costa and into sort of eastern Alameda County down into the sort of uh, Dublin Pleasanton area and out into Livermore. So that's an area where you had major, major, major job growth. 
And there was a developer, pro- a massive developer proposal for Doherty Valley, which at the time was unbuilt, uh, or largely unbuilt, uh, to build a massive kind of suburban complex. And it was fought intensely by the development community. And they spent, I mean, by the environmental community. And so what you essentially had was generally middle, white middle class uh, or upper middle class environmentalists fighting, you know, fairly wealthy and well-off developers over this, you know, massive development project. But what I call the Doherty Valley Dilemma is that no matter who won that battle, it wasn't going to solve the problem. We were going to lose. And we, you see throughout this time all of these fights that are essentially unproductive, essentially unproductive politics, politics around housing or transportation where the end result isn't actually the production of the things that we need. Now, it's not exclusively the case. Again, you mentioned Measure C in, in you know the second version of Measure C in, in, in the late 80s in, in Contra Costa County. That was a moment where, again, there was a lot of fighting, a lot of arguing, but at the end result, it produced a, a measure that actually produced more transportation that was desperately needed, right? That's what That was the measure that ended up being able to finance the extension of BART to Pittsburgh, which is an incredibly important thing. So we have plenty of, there are times where we kind of get together and we argue and you argue and debate and there's different sides and the end result is actually the kind of stuff that needs to get made and that needs to get made in the right way, in the right place, for the right, for a, you know, a wide diverse group of people. But too often we sort of satisfied ourselves with these kind of Doherty Valley cases where, again, we spent a huge amount of time and a huge amount of money and sucked in all of this media attention uh, and and wasted so much political energy on a fight where at the end of the day, like, it wasn't going to help no matter who won. And we see that all too often in the Bay Area. There has to be an emphasis on making the politics of housing and urbanization work. And I mean, even in that case, what you say was a successful case, it was a compromise, which meant that the most privileged communities and you say the best outcome or maybe you can say a necessary outcome would be you put housing near the jobs in, you know, the the massive job center of, you know, Walnut Creek and other San Ramon places. And that didn't happen. They, They actually remained exclusive. And that is something of a failure. And I guess this this has to go to another dilemma, which is the dilemma of gentrification, which I think is one of the tragedies we see in the discourse is a lot of people who are right can lead to an ineffective outcome, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lot of people are correctly saying, if you develop this area, if you allow this to change, to create the housing, which everyone agrees in the abstract we need, it's not going to help my community. We're just going to become displaced. It's not going to be housing for us. So they are, in a lot of ways, correct to say, let's fight it. And uh, you you uh, quoted saying, instead of being a, a vision of housing, it is an anti-regime of resisting housing. It is conservative. It is about preservation. It is is necessary in many ways, but it is not a forward-looking vision of how housing should change. And that's a, that's a massive dilemma we face today. Yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, again, I the I try to avoid as much as possible the the blame game in the in the book, just because again, I don't think it's particularly effective. I um, mean, you know, I point fingers here and there, and you know, I mean, obviously that there, there are certain people that are more responsible. To me, responsibility is a sort of um, is a reflection of power. So the more more power that you have in society, the more responsible you are for for societal ills. And so the yeah the gentrification let me talk about is something that I feel like a lot of communities of color and a lot of communities in um, that 
we're in in potential gentrifying or potentially gentrifying spaces face, which is essentially, you know, gentrification is in part the the result of essentially land and spaces being devalued in a previous era. So the results of post-war urbanization is, is that certain inner city areas or that were uh, actually fairly central were heavily devalued because of race, because of things like redlining that resulted in them being much poorer than they necessarily should have been uh, had, you know, investment been more equitable. And so when, 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 you know, in the, in the 1980s and 1990s, when, you know, again, a combination of taste changing and economics changing and people in positions of power realizing that those lands were particularly valuable, a lot of communities basically faced a choice, which is either we're going to invest in all kinds of things in your community, but that investment is not designed to help you and is likely or possibly likely to result in your displacement from that community. Or essentially you have to continue to struggle with the sort of inadequate uh, investment. So inadequate transport, inadequate housing, housing, inadequate schools, poor quality air, high crime levels, all of the things that went with uh, kind of post-war segregated inner city abandonment. And it's a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't approach. And and so what does that do? I mean, it puts, you know, again, for people who are living and working in these communities and part of advocacy organizations and part of doing community organizing, so much energy needed to be spent on either playing defense against developments that were going to result in displacement or fighting for just like kind of the most basic crumbs that should just be by right. I mean, why, like, you know, the idea that somebody should have to fight for clean air in their community is just absurd. But in fact, that's in fact when clean water. But in fact, that's what had to happen. So, so much political again, so much political energy goes into space into areas that are not actually able to sort of push us towards this more equitable region. But are are are, are you know essentially not not, not they're, they're they're you know forced to essentially constantly be playing defense in this way, and it makes sense. I mean. If somebody comes and tells you that this massive investment in your relatively poor, you know, inner city neighborhood is somehow going to benefit anybody, it's like, you know, they're selling you snake oil. I mean, that's not, it, it's almost never proven to be the case. Now, it should be the case. It should be a situation where we could develop, it is theoretically possible and we should be able to invest without displacement, but that requires. It's in, hard. It's very hard, but it also requires admitting that it's hard and putting in the, making the difficult decisions and making the expensive decisions to put in the protections that are necessary and in place. So we've just not had that kind of political guts. And, and so, you know, a lot of communities, you know, a lot of communities were forced into the, you know, it was either out of the frying pan and into the fryer or the worst part about it is, and again, in place, a lot of places like West Oakland is, or, or, or now parts of Fruitvale, for instance, it's both. You get basically gentrification and abandonment. I mean, you know, crime is still high. Schools are still inadequate, you know, somewhat inadequate. You're still not getting that kind of quality of life in old, previously segregated, some of the places that were kind of most ghettoized in that in the post-war era. The quality of life for communities of color or people who've been through all the wars in those spaces is still not adequate, but they're gentrifying simultaneously. So it's like you're, risk, you're, you're now at a risk where it's like, they never got cheaper. I mean, this is the crazy thing about Oakland. It's like, and Richmond and some of the places where levels of violence in the 1980s and 1990s reach astronomical levels. It's not like they were cheap. They never got cheap. They didn't like, you know, it's not the rent went down. And so people are constantly, you know, it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. And, 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 and that's one of the, again, these kinds of dilemmas just suck up so much political energy that can't be used for more productive purposes for actually kind of making the region that we need.
Yeah, every step along the way, people made the right choice in order to say, hey, let's not blow things up. We, you know, that's not a valid option. But in the end, you know, it, it the lack of action is itself a failure. And it, it, it this this classic way of addressing it, it's not going to be enough. And we need new solutions. Yeah. And I hope, I mean, you know, if there's any one message that I try to push through in the book is from my um you know, it's, it's Ice T's famous maxim of "Don't hate the player, hate the game." Right? We just, we, you know, we've we've somehow like in in the Bay Area, in so many circles that I spend time in, it feels like people have really kind of just accepted defeat in the face of inequality and in the face of particular racialized inequality. Now, again, this is particularly in in kind of white spaces. Um, that in some ways, there's a lot of this like, oh, we did the best that we can. And, and and maybe, you know, maybe for your organization, maybe you did. I mean, there's a lot of Bay Area's got a lot of really good planners and organizers and people who really fought hard to do all kinds of things and it was all very incremental and maybe and they and there were victories. I mean, again, there are plenty of instances and in very places where, you know, the right thing were done or good yeah, like you said, good things were done and you know, you know, there were some truly progressive policies and, and again, you know, some you know, some people housing has been protected and some people a new house some new housing has been built. I mean, it's not entirely like a litany of failure, but we need to be able to sort of val- honor the successes that have that we've had and honor the hard work that's gone in by so many different people over so long and admit collective failure simultaneously. By saying we did not collectively do enough over the last forty years doesn't imply that you individually or your you know didn't do what you could have done or didn't do good things. But I think there just needs to be a little bit more uh, willingness on behalf of the Bay Area to say, hey, listen, like, I'm sorry, we just, we didn't do it. Like, we failed. And, and I, and I, I just, I don't, I know, I don't understand why that, that's, when I say this to people, sometimes they get really upset. Um, and I, you know, I accept my role in this, you know, both as an individual who's lived in the Bay Area, as, you know, somebody who grew up in one of the most privileged parts of the Bay Area, as somebody who's worked with different institutions in different ways, many of whom have done really good things. You know, I was part of the University of California, Berkeley as a graduate student. Berkeley has done amazing things and some really problematic things. And, 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 and so has virtually every other institution. And so I don't like... You can be proud of the work that you've done individually and the, the work that maybe your organization, institution, or company you feel like you've done in this way and still admit collective failure. I mean, it's, it's very easy to say if we're fighting for something, you have to fi- figure out the good guys and bad guys. And if you change and, and, and cross paths, it's like saying you have failed, you are bad. And what's even more tragic is the truth of we have failed, you are good. A lot of, pe- a lot of good people can come together and fail to get the right things we need to have happen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, yeah, that the Bay Area, that's the history of the Bay Area. Lots of really good people coming together and failing. I yeah. mean, and again, that doesn't mean there's not a handful of really bad people, but like, let's just, um, you know, yeah, that, like, that's the, the attitude to have. A lot of really well-intentioned institutions coming together that just don't add up to the sum of their parts. I mean, even the people I feel the most venal and most unambiguously selfish, I still want to say... I can understand where they come from. People don't like change. I mean, if you talk about, you know, working within the system, how unlikely it is that, you know, it's a lose-lose, you know, here in, you know, Palo Alto right next door, it's how likely it is that Palo Alto is going to be able to get itself 
you know, to to do its part when, you know, people say, I don't want this to change. I don't want, you know, you get people say, I just don't want, you know, affordable housing near me. And you think that would be uh, something we can we can go with. But uh, it's I mean, it's you can at least see how one, it is part of a larger system and two is, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fundamental reasons people value their community and we need to work with that. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, listen, I mean, I there's um there's a line in the book from an environmental organizer in um a, in Southern well it, well in who was working in Contra Costa County is actually from Solano County and, and at one point was an elected official there. But I, I don't name a lot of I don't name names in the book. I, I owe a lot of thanks to a lot of the people who interviewed with me and I, I hope they don't mind if, if 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 they're if they're not named, it seemed fair this way to everybody involved. You know, there was um you know, there, and in this quote, she's attempting to be a little bit empathetic with certain forms of nimbyism in the sense that, yeah, I mean, people are, you know, like, especially in the sort of heyday of Contra Costa County growth politics in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. I mean, it would just seem like, you know, to a lot of people, it was just like, you know, every, it was, everything was constantly getting bulldozed, every valley, every hilltop. It was just, it felt like it was kind of constantly coming anywhere. And yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a natural instinct, I understand, to kind of protect what you know, what you have or, or to, to appreciate it. And, and again, a lot of the development, a lot of the growth hasn't necessarily been culturally sensitive or environmentally sensitive. It hasn't necessarily been done the right way um, in, 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 the, in the right spaces, but that doesn't exclude, you know, and so yeah, again, not all, not all nimbyism is inherently wrong. The problem though is, is that, you know, nimby, you know, we, we've, a lot of nimbyism has hidden sort of try to pretend to not be overtly racist and classist. And now, I mean, what's almost terrifying is in the last five or 10 years, I think you really have seen it almost become much more overt, right? That people are, uh, it's almost, you know, and, and it's not just the the current administration of Washington that is enabling uh, this kind of overt racism. And, you know, it happened before him and it'll probably happen after him. Um, but you're really starting to see some people in the Bay Area as true colors. And so that's the other thing, right, is, is that this supposedly kind of big progressive tent has, ma- like, has a, you know, inside that sort of progressive tent has actually been some pretty hardcore, messed up, racist, classist folks who, because they're environmentalist or because they have certain values that maybe means that they support the Democratic Party, doesn't you know masks the fact that ultimately they just don't have truly kind of progressive values and are not willing to to own up to the kind of human conditions that they have helped produce. And I think that's one of the things that has to happen is is that again not only do the do we have to make more out of the fact that we agree on a lot of things and we've got to figure out a way to agree on things like housing and transportation, but at the same time start really truly calling out folks whose uh, policies are overtly Really racist. Well, when people have, you know, just exclusion is their goal, like that is not infrequently really something that people do feel. People don't want to see poor people near them. But what's even, I think, it, it, one thing you point out, and I think this is very, very incisive, is, you know, the planning dilemma, which is it's good to have, you know, thoughtful, good planning around you, but that itself can slow down growth in a way that can privilege those who have, and it can hurt people who don't. Those who say, let's, you know, let's, you know, just, you know, grind it out, slap a bunch of stuff together. People need housing, gosh darn it. That can really mean that you have a lot of, 
you know, uh, very brittle, you know, weak communities and those who design well, it can very much benefit a lot of very privileged people. And that's that is one time where it isn't even explicit exclusion can be at the heart of it. Yeah. So this thing you talk about, the the planning dilemma is something I talk about in in, uh, primarily in the in chapter six of the book, which is the chapter that uh, looks at the Central Valley and how it became part of the Bay Area. Uh, and, and one of the things that you see in that is that the communities that had f- fewer rules about for developers and fewer expectations of developers are ones that both became more diverse, welcomed far more of a diverse group of, of generally former Bay Area residents, but also then ultimately struggled with foreclosure and some of the problems that come with, with this kind of resegregation. The places that in, you know forced developers to build sidewalks and build street lamps and to sort of, you know, build up to certain standards and that had paid, you know, strong, closer attention to the larger fiscal impacts, et cetera, remained, you know, stayed whiter and wealthier and then ultimately had fewer foreclosures. And it's, again, it's part of this larger dilemma in the Bay Area that our our, our politics of urbanization and development are so messed up and so dysfunctional that essentially, yeah, anytime you as a community take actions to make something often better, you also make it more exclusive. And this doesn't have to be the case. I mean, one of the problems is that things like planning and urbanization get often get treated as a zero sum game, that there's only so much money, there's only so much that can be done. And, you know, but that's in fact, just not true. This is not a zero sum game. There's not a finite amount of resources available for spending it on, you know, roads and housing and transportation and water system, et cetera. You know, these are political decisions that we make. Um, and, and we can make different decisions. And again, it's, it's not that it's easy. I mean, one of the also the things that is important about these politics is that it's very hard. Again, it's very, 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 very hard to move people. Building housing for millions of people is difficult. It requires huge amounts of knowledge and capital and resources and putting it in the right place and building it in the right way. It's hard to do these things without making mistakes. I mean, one of the problems with the, urban, the politics of urbanization and development is you have to be able to make mistakes. When you first, you know, when BART was first built, mistakes were made. And the problem is, is that those mistakes got people imagined them, you know, people jumped off the BART bandwagon and we stopped this process of expanding. And so BART became this very exclusive suburban uh, form of transit. People saw it as a failure. Ridership numbers were low. Everybody jumped on the bandwagon. And all of a sudden, 10 years later, like, you know, the trains are packed and it's a success. But again, we so quickly kind of hop off the bandwagon. So we need to admit these things are difficult. It's very hard to actually make a region that works physically. Um, it's, you know, especially in a place like the Bay Area where it's so physically fragmented, hard, it's a difficult geography to work in. You know, this is not like the big flat, this is not Chicago, it's just sort of like a big flat plain where you can kind of, you know, go in straight lines everywhere. The cultural diversity is one of our greatest assets, but it also means that like a lot of people want to want different things and live in different ways. And we have, you know, different times in your life. You need a city for kids and city for young people and city for young adults and city for, you know, city for people who have kids and city for elderly people and a city now for increasingly very, very, very old people. And, and, and this is hard and, and it's not easy, but, you know, and, and, but we don't give, we don't have the patience. We don't have that type of kind of agreement towards a kind of common purpose that enables us to make mistakes. Well, as soon as we make a mistake, everybody jumps on the bandwagon, the knives come out, and that really impacts our ability both to fix that mistake and to continue to do new things in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this is this is about politics, and politics is about iterative processes to 
find things that work and not just ideal policies that will just you know fix things. Uh, I, I enjoy early in the book in the notes, uh, the first time Prop 13 is, is introduced, you say we'll be returning to Prop 13 throughout this book. And you, you do quite a bit because it is one of those things, which is just in a lot of ways a fundamentally bad policy, which hurts so much. But, you know, it isn't just a matter of finding the switch and turning it. You need to work within political systems to find the right coalitions to disrupt this. And I guess with something as big and ingrained as Prop 13, which in a lot of ways stops politics, it makes so many things impossible. You know, what do you think the right way forward is to deal with such huge challenges like that? So, you know, for those who listeners who don't know, Prop 13 is a 1978 ballot measure that restricted property taxes in the state of California from going up. I think every listener of the show uh, probably is uh, well aware uh, of Prop, Prop 13. 13. Good. I'm glad you got to hear that. I, I've always, I'm always getting lectured about sort of, you know, dropping too many adjectives, but I'm glad that the, we have- This show is, is all about municipal financing. financing. Yeah. Like, so. So, so first of all, okay. So since everybody is knowledgeable, I'd like to propose uh, one rule, and I hope this is not an imperative that gets me in, tr- in, in uh, uh, gets me in trouble with uh, the FCC regulations, which is I do believe it's very important to never refer to Prop Thirteen uh, as the third rail. The third rail is like one of the most amazing technological inventions in the history of humanity. It's something that powers urban mobility across the world. Like nothing is more awesome than this. Like you know, 700 volts. And yeah, okay, if you touch the third rail, you die. But like the third rail is like, is, is what we need more. We need more third rails in the Bay Area because that means we're have, you know, electrified transit systems that are moving us in various places. So please, for the sake of urbanization, don't refer to Prop 13 as, as changes to Prop 13 as, as the third rail. Find some sort of other metaphor for, for something that is difficult to touch because it's more of a like yeah. quicksand. It's a swamp. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, not exactly. something awe inspiring. I like quicksand because swamps also are like really important, you know, productive spaces and, and certain, again, certain people in Washington who will not be named on this show or any other time on any other show will use the swamp metaphor. Again, swamps are homes to all sorts of like important critters who do important things, but let's call it quicksand because that quicksand doesn't seem to have any kind of biological value. It's quicksand. So, I mean, it's nice to see in California that, you know, again, I think you're finally starting to see throughout the state of California with, you know, maybe with the new administration coming in and kind of, you know, with the Democratic supermajority and some increasing attention to the the issues of urbanization. I think you're starting to see some concrete proposals for Prop 13 reform, at least for the basis of removing, like, you know, removing non-residential property from, from these kind of property tax increases. Because, I mean, there is a legit, I mean, you know, in in states that don't have protection against rising property taxes, when property values go up, low-income people can be displaced from homes that they own because they can't afford it. I mean, we're now uh, facing uh, an increasingly scary prospect for low-income homeowners uh, across the state, which is rising fire insurance and rising insurance costs in the wake of all the disasters. I mean, again, there's all kinds of ways that you can be displaced from a home that you own, um, even if it's paid off. Uh, and so- I, I did, you know, yeah, I, I try to come back to it. And, and, and what I try to do with Prop 13 is, yeah, it's always there. It's always sort of central to it. And, and but what I try to talk about it more is, you know, the, is the political importance of Prop 13 as much as the sort of fiscal or, or technical importance, right? Because Prop 13 was part of a kind of racialized white suburban revanchism. And, you, you know, if we had far more 
about it in the work of Robert Self or the work of Mike Davis and 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 some of the authors that I'm imagining some of your listeners are, are familiar with. And so that's you know, again, I, I won't I won't go uh, too deep into it. But one of the problems with Prop 13 is is that everybody focuses so intensely on Prop 13 and it becomes sort of again yet another boogeyman. There, but yeah, Prop 13 was a bad idea. It definitely was. You know, maybe the worst idea of them all. Of you know, you know, if, if you had to pick a policy culprit, um, but there are so many other things. And in general, for instance, the ballot system has been terrible for the politics of urbanization and development. Um, it's ridiculous that you know we all vote uh, on extremely complex financing measures. I mean, I have a PhD in city and regional planning from Berkeley, which is one of the best city and regional planning departments in the world. And I read the ballot measures about funding water infrastructure or highway infrastructure, and I don't particularly understand whether it's a good way. That's just not the only thing I can tell you is is that that is not a good way. I mean, the purpose of legislatures is to like get it, it's a you know, full time job. Yeah, I mean that's like what I mean. Come on, it's like I want to elect people who will then appoint people, and then we'll again. There's all kinds of ways of creating democratic accountability and democratic participation in the production of our regions without putting. Uh, you know, a five billion dollar bond financing measure on the on the ballot. I mean, it, it's it's just ludicrous. But so prop that's the problem with Prop Thirteen is that it has absorbed so much political energy, and this is part of what I'm talking about. Again, if the goal is to create common purpose, it it did the opposite. It really fragmented our politics in all kinds of horrible ways. Um, and we've not recovered. It's not that we haven't recovered. Some places have been fine fiscally. It's not just the fiscal damage that Prop Thirteen did. It's the political damage that Prop 13 did. Uh, and one of the things I try to do in the in the chapter on the state of California, though, is force everybody to go back to Prop 14. So Prop 14 was, uh, in 1963, the state of California passed uh, an anti-discrimination law on housing called the Rumford Act, and Prop 14 was the first big revanchist uh, move by, by white suburbanites, which is basically to repeal this act, and it passed in 1964. Um, and that really laid the foundation for the modern conservative movement. You know, Reagan is elected government governor in 1966. You start the beginning of the undoing of a lot of the Pat Brown legacy. Uh, and Prop 14 was what set the stage ultimately for Prop 13. And so it's just, again, like a lot of things in this book, I I'll, I try to, you know, again, put race more center. I try to take you back to earlier moments in history. I try to take away some of the kind of poster child symbol symbolic things like pop 13 that yeah they do matter but to try to build a little bit more of a complex and nuanced and deeper understanding of all of the things that go on so i hope i'm, I'm glad everybody knows a lot about prop 13 here <laughs> but i would urge you to dig a little bit more into sort of 1964's prop 13 prop 14 and then you'll understand the full picture which had more you know just more explicit you know yeah. you know discrimination it had the it had the courtesy to die within a generation as well, opposed- yeah and then i mean and then afterwards again in the, in the chapter i do on state of california i mean it's a, if you're asking why the politics never came together it just has to do with you know p- communities of color in the aftermath of prop 13 basically had to spend the next two decades just fighting for the right to survive so whether it's prop 187 if you remember that or prop 21 of you know or prop 36 i mean you name it, English only, prison building, three strikes. It was so easy for it, so long just was, to just to make it more hard for the more disadvantaged people. It was the, yeah, yeah, and that was I mean that was essentially it was just like one long wave of kind of revanchist white anger during this period of time that made it difficult for you know again in, 
we needed to be sitting down and figuring out how to like, you know, how to pay for everything, how to build housing, how to build transit, how to do all these important things about day-to-day life. And there was no time to have those kind of new coalitions and that kind of state building because, uh, you know, it was, we're just sort of, people are focused on, you know, just the basic right to survive, the basic right to vote, the basic right to not be imprisoned. So as far as overcoming these dilemmas of, of effective, you know, being ineffective, you know, even though people, you know, could work together and overcome this, but for different reasons, it's hard. Do you, do you have an idea of what you think it would look like for a world past these dilemmas? Do you, do you have yeah. like, do you have like concrete ideas or do you think that's for politics to decide and it's not good to be concrete about it? Well, so, you know, I'm a planner at heart, um, you know, and, uh, I do ultimately, you know, at at some point, I do actually think that we need to start. I I I, I do need to do a little bit better job in the future uh, of trying to envision what a future barrier looks like that is not so unequal. And part of the reason is one of the things that I try to argue, not just in this book, but a lot of work that I've done previously, is that the the region needs. You know, we need to admit that these places on the outskirts of the region are fundamentally part of us and they're fundamentally not bad places and they're fundamentally not going anywhere. And that we need to start being a lot more ambitious when it comes to transportation infrastructure and, you know, even potential kind of new town development, kind of old school ideas about, you know, admitting the fact that we live in a region the size of Ghana. You know, I mean, like, it's like, this is that, that's just who we are. That's what we, we made this place and we need to start admitting it. And so I think you need to start seeing kind of truly bold, kind of almost old, old fashioned in, in the sense of the grandiosity of the vision without all of the racism and all the other things that came with that particular era. It's what I like to think of as the paramodern approach, which is sort of taking some of the best parts of the modernist era and some of the best parts of the postmodern era and kind of bringing them together. But yeah, there needs to be a, there needs to be a true vision. And I don't see that coming out uh, of the regional agencies and, you know, the plan barrier type of things. And um, so we'll we'll see what, what, what can happen. But I, I do in the, in the meantime, what I focus on in the book and in particularly in the conclusion of the book and how if you're interested in this kind of stuff on my website, I have made the the conclusion publicly available, so you can just download the PDF. And I, I very much welcome anybody you know can email me or tweet at me, and 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 uh, if you've got you know either ideas or issues or you know you want to be in solidarity, or you think I'm dead wrong, but the, I focus on trying to develop you know ideas that can come up with some kind of key political principles that can uh, help build a little bit more common purpose around the politics of, of urbanization and development. And the most important thing is, again, is to focus on the politics. You know, it's not about politics. People obsess with policy. And so people obsess with, again, oh, do we know repeal Prop 13? Or I guess, you know, what today's news is that, and I don't know if this is going to air today, but today being December, you know, whenever this is, this is being recorded on the 5th of December, 2018, uh, the newest version of Scott Wiener's infamous SB 827 has dropped. I think it's going to be called SB 50, which is a new attempt by the state government to sort of force upzoning on recalcitrant jurisdictions who have large amounts of transportation access. Um, and so the thing about it is, is that whether or not that is a good policy. So, you know, and again, I think in some case, I think it very much can be. I would, I, I know every time I have to, like, I go on BART through a Rinda, I, it just makes me want to, you know, chop off my finger or punch somebody. In the, it just makes me irate. 
Um, it, this kind of stuff is absolutely necessary. But the problem with the last the last version of A twenty seven, and it was it was kind of repeating the same kind of classic mistakes, is that you had a certain group of elite actors trying to ram through a particularly like you know important and complex and difficult piece of housing legislation, and doing it in a way that made the collective politics worse, not better. It's not about the policy; it's about the politics. Because no matter what policy we pass, we're going to have to pass new policies, and then we're going to have to fix those policies and make new policies. Like this policy-making process is like the city-building process; it has to constantly be renewed. You build a house; you have to keep fixing the house. And our policy process is like our house-building, like our, inf- our it's like our city-building process. Is that we that, that everybody gets so angry and so upset that it creates a kind of like a disinvestment. And so the houses sit and rot and the freeways sit and rot because we don't have the energy to kind of continue at it. And so what we need are policies and that can, that create new coalitions and stronger coalitions. And that the, the end result of that policy isn't that the Bay area is saved because that's not going to happen. The end result of that policy is that the politics are strong enough that we're going to keep doing it again and build a tent bigger and bigger and bigger. And so what I hope that that, you know, that the senator and the political leaders behind this new SB 50 have learned and the initial sounds that people are making are somewhat better is that this needs to be a big coalition effort that sets the stage, not for more, you know, for additional policies so that that coalition that passes this gets bigger and can pass the next stage. Um, Because again, ultimately, it's not going to be one switch. Exactly, (laughs) we need you know, and you're going to need you know various forms of rent regulation to protect people from being displaced. Other forms of anti you know displacement. You're going to need deeper subsidies. You're going to need billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars in new mass transit. You're going to need to figure out a way to make ride sharing, car sharing, and scooters and bikes and all of these kind of Silicon Valley transportation challenges actually work. Together with the rest of the system, we're going to need BART extension. You're going to need massive advancement, you know, on the on the fringes of the bay, bringing it together, high speed. You need so many different things, and it's, it took us fifty to hundred years to one hundred and fifty years to create this unequal metropolis. It's going to take another 30, 40, 50 years to get out of it. And so, the most important thing is that people need to start paying more attention to the impact that whatever policy they propose has on the overall politics. It's the politics that we need to fix. And if we fix the politics, then we'll be able to kind of stick with the policies. And you know, guess what? Sometimes policies don't work and it's not because they're evil or just because or they're wrong. It's sometimes we just made a few little mistakes and they can be tweaked. Um, and so I, that's what I do in the conclusion. And, and again, you can take a look at it on my website. I go through eight different principles, um, including principles of restorative justice, uh, principles around exploitation, principles about well, a wider response, acceptance of a wider responsibility. Um, idea, you know, just conversations about kind of the growth machine and sort of how we build things, um, and about the broader economy of buildings. Um, and, and one of the principles, I guess, I'll sort of end with, you know, without kind of going through all of them, is is the fact that we need to recognize that we need to start teaching and learning about urbanization earlier in life. And it needs to become a much more sort of central part of both our politics and our education system. It's just ridiculous that in the state of California, one of the greatest urban projects in the history of this planet, where almost everybody in the state of California lives in a metropolitan area, right? I think it's like 96% or something in the state of California lives in a metropolis of some sort. That means either the central city or some sort of suburb that commutes to it. Um, so all but a handful of rural counties are, metropo- are considered metropolitan. 
we don't learn how housing gets built or how cities get built or water systems or sewage systems or highways or transport. We don't learn any of that for the most part as we grow up. Um, we learn all kinds of other things, uh, but we don't learn how we make the actual spaces and places, how we learn California. And that needs and to change. And how we finance it. And how, and how, and in, and how it's financed. And, 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 and so that has to happen. Again, it's probably not going to be the general, you know, my parents' generation or even my generation that's going to see the end results of the building of a better California. It's going to be a younger generation. And, and the way to get there is, is to raise them. And you see this in, in again, in, in areas in, in Europe, uh, for instance, where I've lived for the last eight years, Europe is no less racist than the United States. In fact, in certain parts of the area, they're more racist. But they're still better at building cities than we are. And the reason is that they learn about how cities get made. And there's a recognition that the making of France and the making of the Netherlands and the making of Germany is part of the major purpose of politics. It's the, one of the major purposes of government and governance. And it's made by all different sectors and all different types of actors at all different scales. Um, and they just don't get involved in these kind of ideological fights around uh, around city building in the same way that we do. And so at the end of the day, they have their, their cities, it's not, you know, their cities are simply much more fiscally stable. They're much more uh, resilient. They're much more prepared for, for changes. And I, I think that they're in a better situation than, than we are in California. And again, not because they are better people or because they are less racist or less classist, but because... They learn more about how cities are made, and they focus more of their politics on making better cities. So you, you can find these conclusions on your website, but I definitely think that anyone involved in the housing discourse can learn an awful lot from you know this look at the Bay Area, and I can you know wholeheartedly recommend that it is it is definitely worth understanding so much more from doing this. And I, I definitely feel that so often there's an impasse reached by people who could get together and really find great solutions instead fighting and i think good faith interaction with ideas and understanding how we all are correct in a lot of ways yeah there's a lot of i, I love the hope and possibility of this idea of a, of a better uh better future for politics and housing and uh it's i think it's a book we need right now well thank you you're too <laughs> kind I, I appreciate it I, I you know my apologies that the book is more expensive uh than i want it to be there's a on my website, you'll also find a discount code. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but um, yeah, it's you know I, I I appreciate that. It's something that is definitely a, a, something something that I've been kind of cooking up in my mind. I think for a really long time. Um, it's a it's something that you know comes from a combination of you know yeah a lot of late years and really caring about uh, the region. Like a lot of deep love for the Bay Area. A lot of years of caring about it. Um, a lot of years of working in an activist space around it, and then uh, you know. A lot of years of very kind of careful study of of, of trying to do this in as rigorous uh, a way as possible, and uh, so yeah, there's been you know I, I've I've learned a lot. There's been so many, you know so many other people's ideas, and so many you know have have gone into this, and I I'm just grateful for you know all of the authors who've come before, all of the people who spoke to me over the course of many many years of doing research, um, even the littlest conversations that I had, you know, working at the Brentwood Farmers Market informally selling ravioli just helped me try to understand uh, what was going on, and and I you know I, we'll see. I, I'm very curious. You know, any of your listeners who want to get in touch again, whether you know by emailing me or tweeting at me, whether it's something good or bad, uh, uh, I, I'm I'm very curious to engage, and that's what I do. It and hopefully uh, I will I will be able to get myself back here uh, and working on this uh, much more intensely uh, in the years to come. Great, thank you so much for being here, Alex. We have been talking to Alex Shaffron 
about his new book, The Road to Resegregation, Northern California and the Failure of Politics. It was put out by University of California Press. You can find this episode and all previous episodes at the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU Stanford. <laughs>